It's sweet, addictive, and controlled by a mafia-esque organization who crushes and bends the rules, further their profits, and get more people hooked on their product. Of course, this riddle would be more fun if the episode title did not give it away, but maple syrup. Would it surprise you to find out that the syrup industry is as cutthroat as some of the more nefarious substances are? Or is this all conjecture to get you uh, to listen further on the episode and find out for yourself? Guess you're just going to have to... Listen and find out about the history and the truth of that sticky, sticky sweet syrup on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied critical need to know information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Hello there, folks, and welcome back to the Remedial Scholar. I'm your host, Levi, and today's episode was suggested to me by a listener. So thank you, Doc, once again. Doc, if you guys remember, also suggested the Japanese internment camp episode, which I feel like was uh, super duper interesting, um, and one that I don't think a lot of people, I don't know, listened, or not, not that a lot of people didn't listen to, but it's something that not a lot of people know about like heavily it's a topic that is just kind of like yeah we did that and then they move in and they're like but the rest of world war ii is crazy bad so we gotta we had to do it <laughs> and it just gets like slid to the side so i'm glad that he suggested that episode because it was very eye-opening i think and hopefully you all thought so too if you'd like to suggest a topic you can go to the link tree link tree slash remedial scholar you can google that google that exact phrase and you will find it and then uh, there's a button in the link tree for topic suggestion you can find all the links there uh, others such as merch and youtube will be in the description as well as uh, instead of just the link tree you can find them in the description wherever you're consuming this but back to the topic at hand i thought it'd be an interesting if not hilarious topic to explore little did i know this topic was a wild ride with unexpected twists and turns today's topic is about the history of maple syrup in quebec canada quebec as it turns out quebec is a very very serious uh, when it comes to maple syrup. Today's episode was also researched and written by Chloe Kibi, who also happens to be a Quebecer. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so some countries are rich in resources. The United States is rife with timber and coal, used to also be big steel producers, not anymore. Saudi Arabia, obviously oozing with oil. And Canada, for its part, is chock full of industrial uh, minerals and precious metals. But these exports aren't the only thing that Canada brings to the proverbial table. More specifically, the breakfast table. Breakfast club. <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the eastern province of Quebec in Canada is the world's leading exporter of maple syrup. And the maple industry, maple syrup industry, is not one to be trifled with. As it stands, Canada produces 75% of the world's maple syrup. The Canadian province of Quebec, for its part, produces 92% of the maple syrup that Canada generates and is responsible for around 96% of Canadian maple syrup export. When we're releasing dollops of that delectable amber drizzle on our waffles in the morning, it's easy to forget that maple syrup is not just a confection, it's a seasonal crop. And just like any other agricultural product, it's the yearly maple syrup harvest is weather dependent. The alternating of freezing and thawing allows for the pressure to build up, which is in turn required to tap the tree and harvest the flowing sap. A warm spring can therefore have catastrophic results. 
for the seasonal maple syrup harvest. For these, for this reason, there exists a maple syrup reserve. That's right, folks. Maple syrup demand is so consistent and high that in order to keep local brunch spots and sugar shacks afloat, maple syrup is kept backed by the government in gargantuan quantities for emergencies. <laughs> Which is an insane thing to be like, guys, <laughs> it's an emergency. We need the maple syrup. We've got to tap into the reserve. We're, we're running low. Quebec maple syrup producers, it turns out, are the ones setting quotas for production. Any overproduction is placed into this global reserve. Folks, we're effectively talking about big maple. As with all things deemed valuable in our capitalist economy, this liquid gold, which is exported yearly to, the, to around 72 different countries, has even been at the center of trade disputes and, turns out, crime. Before we get into the pinnacle of today's tale, let's drizzle a little bit of history to set the stage. God, that was, that was an amazing line. <laughs> As it is with most good things born out of the wild continent of North America, tapping trees for maple syrup harvesting is a technique first mastered by the indigenous people that inhabited parts of eastern Canada and some of the northeastern areas of the United States. One of these groups is collectively known as the Anishinaabe. This is a group of indigenous nat nations that are culturally, culturally and linguistically related and live in the geographical region delineated by the Ottawa River Valley, the boundary between eastern Ontario and Quebec, and encompassed by uh, encompassed the plains of Saskatchewan to the south, as well as the northern parts of North Dakota, Minnesota, and Michigan. Parts of the northern shores of the Great Lakes, Ontario and Erie to be precise, were also home to the Anishinaabe. Three distinct peoples, the Ojibwa, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi, make up the Anishinaabe, also called the Council of the Three Fires, or Niswi Mishkodewan. There is a lot of indigenous words, and I just want to stop for a second and preface the rest. Like, I did look up some of the ways to um, pronounce some of these, but some of these are not on any videos that I could find, and this is going to be a struggle that we're gonna go through together so i just want you to know there's no disrespect meant i tried and we're gonna do what we can anyway <laughs> moving on it said that anishinaabe would refer to the period where maple sap was collected as the sugar making moon or zisbaquado gizis is also called the sucker moon or namabenegizis dude i'm telling you these words are these are tough maple trees were also tapped by the Abenaki, the Haudenosaunee, and Mi'kmaq, known colloquially as indigenous people of the eastern woodlands. It's believed that indigenous people ingested the cambium part of the maple tree in order to sustain themselves during periods of food scarcity. Cambium is the part of a plant between the bark and the hardwood tissues. Consequently, by cutting the maple to access the cambium, the sap would have also been collected. This was, as Bob Ross would say, a happy little accident. This sap was thought to have been added to cook corn and beans and added as flavoring to game meats. Indeed, the Haudenosaunee were uh, reported to cook their venison with so-called sweet water or, or wishkababu. Uh, wish wishkababu. Yeah, obviously. But how did the indigenous peoples of eastern Canada know how to boil down the maple sugar water in order to make the sweet syrupy staple that we know and love today? Well, legend has it that the secret to making maple syrup was actually transmitted telepathically to the Anishinaabe of the Whitefish River Nation by the... Oh my gosh, dude. <laughs> by... I'm gonna say little people, but I'm gonna tell you how this word is spelled and then you'll understand my struggles with it. B-G-O-J-I-N-I-S-H-N-A-A-B-E-N-H-S-A-G. And I'm not even gonna attempt because I'm gonna 
I'm gonna mess that word up for sure. So they are called the quote little people. I'm gonna say these are aliens for sure, right? This has gotta be aliens. This message was transmitted as said while they were asleep. Upon waking, the Whitefish River clan having been bestowed with this myth, uh, mystical knowledge by the little people tasked themselves tasked themselves with incorporating this newfound information into their life. Here's a quote by Arthur McGregor from his book titled Wigwaskinga, Land of the Birch Tree. Those little beings have been around this earth for a long time and there are more of them all over this country. They can't see them sometimes, but they are around though. I don't know where they are. They never hurt anybody. And that's how the native people learned how to make maple syrup. Maple syrup was being made here in Canada long before the Europeans came. A long time before, a long time before, and then it's that crazy B-G-O-J-I-N word. <laughs> what most people describe as telepathy while we were sleeping. The little people told us how to make maple syrup, so when we were told how to make it, we tried it and it worked. It's still being made today, but it was those little wild men that told us how to do it. And then he says that they are around yet, they, they're still around. So there you have it. The knowledge about how to prepare this magical nectar was downright otherworldly in nature, which explains why it's so delicious. Aliens gave us maple syrup and it's delicious and we thank them every day. And the effect of maple syrup only gets more intense from there, <laughs> in case you thought that telepathic aliens wasn't as intense it gets more crazy the climate of quebec is perfect for harvesting the singular ingredient that is used to create maple syrup the sap of the red and silver sugar maple tree it is known as maple water and in the winter temperatures dip below freezing allowing the sap to freeze up and then as the spring thaw rolls in the pressure causes the sap to flow jacques cartier the french explorer who was the first european to map out the gulf of saint lawrence and the saint lawrence river he was also the first european to document the maple syrup trees and their associated sap tapping this was around the year 1534 the finding of jacques cartier's voyages were documented by one andre thevet thevet uh. In 1557, another settler recorded accounts of what he called collection and distillation of sap by the Micmac. This was 1606, and by 1608, Europeans and the first local First Nations were swapping cooking methods. For example, the Anishinaabe would use sugar maple as a food preservation technique, effectively using the sugars in the maple water as a preservative, thus ensuring the prolonged shelf life of certain foods. This helped sustain communities through prolonged and arduous winters. You know. Who could have used that? The Donner Party. I'm glad you. I'm glad you said it, because that's what I was thinking. Historical records state that the local indigenous people used a varied array of techniques to tap maple trees. Incidentally, I thought it would be interesting to mention that a grove of maple trees is sometimes called a sugar bush, the hardwood forest that runs through Canada and supplies the bulk of the maple syrup. Then and now is called the Maple Belt. Across this large swath of land, sugar bushes would be tapped during the sugar-making moon, which roughly corresponds to the month of April or when spring starts to creep around the corner. At that time, a V-shaped cut would be made into the maple trees and willow tubes inserted into the slits in order to collect the trickling maple water. Birch bark bowls would be affixed to uh, just below the tube. Now, as we mentioned earlier, legend has it that the preparation techniques of maple syrup was transmitted by otherworldly little people. Documented techniques, however, were varied. Some would let the bowl of maple water freeze overnight. This process would cause the lighter maple water to separate from the heavier uh, sugar syrup. The next morning, the frozen part would be tossed away, leaving only the gooey, thicker part, which would be saved for consumption. Another method used, one that is akin to the way we produce maple syrup today, involves boiling down the maple 
maple water. This was done by various means. Maple water would be reduced to a sap, adding hot rocks to the birch bark pots, or simmered in a clay or metal pot over a fire. Basically, this technique amounts to boiling down the maple, maple water in order to thicken it into a syrupy sap. The, the latter technique, I don't, I don't know if it, I don't know if I need to say thickened like that, but I did, so you're welcome. <laughs> the latter technique would only be achievable once the cooking methods of settlers and local First Nations began being intertwined as European settlers introduced cooking implements of metalwork, uh, made of metalwork. For example, the Iron Cauldron came to North American culinary scene around 1676, almost 20 years before the uh, Salem Witch Trials. Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. Now, the use of the maple water and its boiled down syrupy offshoot was incorporated into First Nations culture for a millennia. It was used for everything from staving off hunger, sweetener, food preservation. It would also later be used as a trade item once indigenous culture became sub subjected to the forced proximity of European settler colonies. The initial framework of maple syrup harvesting is undoubtedly owed to the indigenous people of the eastern woodlands and the Anishinaabe. However, as whites are wont to do, European settlers saw a staple of community and eventually found a way to monetize it beyond the scope of utility. So how did maple syrup reach the conglomerate status that it has today? Well, for starters, sugar was prized as a delicacy in Europe during a the period of its colonial expansion into the so-called New World, a small vignette into the uh, motivating factors behind the economic growth of maple syrup. King Louis XVI of France was noted as having a predilection for sugared almonds. In 1700, a Montreal businesswoman named Agatha de Agathe de Repente Repentigne. That's God, that's the most French I've ever sounded in my life, I think, trying to read that. Uh, took it upon herself to send him a sample of maple sugar. To those who aren't in the know, maple sugar is essentially granulated maple syrup that has been cooked to the point of crystallization. You know, maple sugar meth, if you will. No. Uh, this simple act of marketing engendered the ordering of 30,000 pounds of maple sugar to France in the following year. Also, keeping in mind this time period, Europeans loved all of their different spices and uh, sweeteners and things, remember? I mean, this is 1700, so it's kind of on the tail end of that, but like, that's still a thing. One of the tenets of uh, maple syrup production is the cultural cloak enveloping the process. As the indigenous roots of the practice began to fade, the cultural construction surrounding Quebec maple production began to form. Bridging this was the idea that local First Nations would incorporate maple syrup into the making of what is called bannock bread. A staple often used in long-distance travel by French-Canadian fur traders, conversationally and historically known as the Cour de Bois in English. The direct translation of this is Runners of the Woods. Bunch of crazy woodmen. There's <laughs> runners of the... Ah, man. And now I'm just picturing a bunch of like 1700s French fur traders, like the, like the ones in the movie Prey, just sprinting through woods eating this... <laughs> eating this bread then I gotta tell you it's a fun visual in the 17 and 1800s settlers began tapping sugar bushes there's got to be an inappropriate joke in there somewhere in one example of the maple related innovation there was a shift from using axes to recreate notches in the maple trees to using wooden taps driven into the trees the quote traditional wooden spout adjoining bucket system was invented for some producers hollowed out logs were still used instead of actual wooden buckets by 1850 another facet of Quebec 
maple, uh, maple syrup culture came to be the sugar shack. If wine has its vineyards, then maple syrup has its sugar shack. The sugar shack, also known as a sugar shanty or sap house, refers to a group of cabins in a sugar bush that encapsulate the maple syrup making operation of a group or more often family. This is because maple syrup making in Quebec and parts of New England would go for from a settler trade business to a cottage industry spearheaded by family-run operations. In the early aughts, sugar shacks were family-run and maple syrup making was heralded as craftsmanship. Annexed to the sugar shack is the idea of sugar parties, and Chloe makes a note, says, As a native Quebecer, I can attest to the boisterous, festive, and gluttonous nature of a sugar shack party. It does sound Rather enticing, I gotta tell ya. Sugar Party solidified maple syrup's part in Quebec culture as it was reported that even in as early as 1868, city-dwelling folk would hightail it to the maple belt in order to sit in and witness maple syrup production in the rural area. While maple water boiled in large kettles over roaring fires, a party-like atmosphere would ensue obviously gotta get that maple maple party <laughs> this included eating lavish meals whilst seated at long tables live music and a lot of singing and dancing yeah they're all on a sugar rush they're gonna crash 30 minutes later but they're hype man no another notable in innovation in the maple syrup production was the implementation of metal spouts and buckets in lieu of traditional wooden models other distinctive innovations that facilitated the streamlining of maple syrup production process lied in getting maple water from the tree to the various collection points in the maple grove for this reason a vacuum tubing system had replaced the traditional spout and bucket model in some groves now as we pointed out earlier Quebec maple syrup banks on demand, but it is also scaffolded by nostalgia and the quote mom and pop aspect of the industry. For this reason, it's difficult to reconcile how the industry has evolved from cottage to cartel, but this is in fact what happened. As global demand rose and as te techniques for sap collection optimized over decades, maple syrup harvesting became big business, not only as a commodity, but as a modality of ecotourism. Maple syrup, as it turns out, has migrated from pancakes to vinaigrettes, cocktails, and de uh, and desserts and with these additional uses comes you know additional demand now there are a couple of factors that play into the maple syrup quote going corporate but for one although maple syrup is a crop it can be subjected to climate shifts maple trees can live up to 100 years and tapping syrup from maple trees has repeatedly proven not to damage the tree thus although it takes a considerable amount of time for a maple to get to maturity it can produce sap for up to a century. Also, as we touched upon earlier, production innovations have increased the yield and lessened the labor cost of maple syrup making. What's more, maple syrup is a one ingredient product and the evaporation of water is the only step into step required in making it making said product. Ooh. The production window for tapping maple water is roughly six weeks long between March and April. Each tap each maple tree can be tapped up to three times during that period. Sap is collected from various collection stations in the sugar bush and transported to a storage container. Next, the maple water is brought to an evaporation station where the maple water will be cooked down to the tune of 40 to 1 ratio, i.e. 40 gallons of maple water will produce one gallon of pure, sweet, sweet maple syrup. Now, maple water is 98% water and 2% sugar. When it is cooked, a mallard, a mallard, a mallard reaction takes place. This term is used to, 
to explain how when cooking browning will result in new flavors and aromas to generate when tapped early in the season the resulting maple uh, syrup will be lighter in color with a golden hue and mild taste this grade a maple syrup when maple maple water is tapped later in the season is darker in color in the past darker maple syrup was classified as grade b there is however no distinction in value between grades it is simply a question of taste so to avoid confusion these days all maple syrup is classified as grade a which kind of defies the point but it's good marketing you know everything is awesome <laughs> you like you like dark maple syrup great it's grade a you like light maple syrup bet you won't believe this but it's also grade a and uh and dark maple syrup now has the moniker as grade a very dark which seems seems a little I don't know. There's something so I don't like the way that it's <laughs> one of the singular facts about Quebec maple syrup production is the fact that maple syrup's popularity and demand generated the need for a maple syrup cartel. Now, I say this with heavy comedic undertones but it actually rings true as we mentioned earlier since quebec supplies over 92 percent of canadian maple syrup and canada in turn supplies over 75 percent of the world's maple syrup quebec is the world's de facto leading supplier of maple syrup makes sense math be math this province production can be chalked up to 7300 7300 producers most of whom have banded together under the banner of quebec maple syrup producers qmsp a government sanctioned private cartel the origins of the cartel can be traced back to the to the Beauce region of Quebec, where in 1958, local maple syrup producers agreed to collectively produce and market their maple syrup. In 1966, the idea evolved into a province-wide federation, which is an organizing organization known as the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup (FPAQ) and has been tightly regulated regulating the market since 18. 1989 when all quebec producers agreed to a collective agreement to market their product the organization changed its name to qmsp in 2018 now as we mentioned loosely earlier yields can fluctuate depending on the spring climate and while it is true that maple syrup is in demand worldwide mostly due to the fact that its production stems from the geographically unique maple belt maple syrup is a pantry item that can easily fall into the category of non-essential for foreign budgets indeed in times of recession decadence is often the first thing to on the chopping block to go <laughs> looking at you marie antoinette that was that was uncalled for probably <laughs> so in order to curb fluctuations in demand and hindrances in production the qmsp sets pricing and implementation uh, implementing a federal reserve of gold liquid gold that is as such most of the 7300 maple syrup farmers in quebec must be part of the federation they then sell directly to the qmsp and are not allowed to sell products out to the outside unregulated market the qmsp in turn acts as a broker of sorts and negotiates pricing to large-scale buyers believe it or not and i found this staggering there are only eight large-scale buyers that claim all of the maple syrup that goes to market yearly those buyers sell directly to grocery stores. As for the reserves, it's simple. When the season produces a bountiful harvest, excess syrup goes into containers and is left in storage. Conversely, a poor harvest means that the reserve is tapped instead of the trees. This means that syrup prices would would remain advantageous and the quant quantity available for export remains stable. In theory, this is great. The cartel would allow predictability. In theory, this is great. 
The cartel would allow predictability the same way that the Organization of Petroleum Export Exporting Countries, OPEC, governs laws surrounding oil exportation in the Middle East. But it also meant that Quebec maple farm uh, syrup farmers could not capitalize on market demand. As the QMSP policies the uh, polices the farmers by enforcing seasonal quotas and curbing the possibility of selling off any extra product to the market. To put it simply, if a farmer produces her quota that year, she'll get paid out accordingly. However, if she produces a surplus the next season, she will be paid only as much as the quota dictates and not a cent more. Her extra product will be put into storage and she will only be paid out for it when there is a global shortage and the reserve needs to be tapped. Naturally, this can sometimes take years, so understandably there is some tension between farmers and the cartel. In short, not all of the maple syrup producers subscribe to the ideals of the QMSP. This small faction sometimes openly defies the cartel by selling on the open market. However, the cartel is powerful and well-organized. It's also backed by Canadian law and possesses the ability to dole out fines and confiscate equipment. The tension began to boil over, so to speak, in the early 2000s when maple syrup crops were highly, highly successful and demanded for maple syrup began growing worldwide. These should have caused a financial windfall for maple syrup producers, but with the Federation negotiating directly with buyers, they were in a chokehold and it became glaringly obvious that they weren't cashing in on the quote, true market value of their product. It's in this climate that the idea for a reserve truly took flight. As such, in 2012, nearly 46 million pounds of maple syrup. The Federal Reserve officially named it the International Strategic Reserve, sat in three storage warehouses in Quebec. The barrels, 600-pound units, were corralled in warehouses in the towns of St. Antoine de Tilly, Plessisville, and St. Louis de Blanc. Blanford, all satellites of the bigger operation in Laurierville in Quebec. The value of maple syrup was being controlled by the cartel. A small frac faction of farmers grew restless that they weren't getting you know, what they perceived as their fair share of the pie and all while giant vats of liquid gold lay unopened and waiting. What could possibly go wrong? In the spring of 2011, it was perfect sugaring off weather. Nights dipped below freezing, but the mornings and afternoons warmed enough for the sap and the red and sugar maples of the maple belt to produce consistently. As such, there was an abundance of maple syrup production that season. Maple syrup at the time was more expensive than oil, retailing around 1300 US dollars a barrel, which is 27 more exp uh, times more expensive than oil, which is crazy to me. The Federation had staged its prices uh, as two things early on, stable and high, but as tensions between farmers and the Federation grew in the light of such surplus, the third tendril coalesced into existence in the underbelly of the trade, wrestled into reluctant compl complacency by the iron-fisted gauntlet of the QMSP. This was, of course, the seedy criminal wing that always morphs into being when money, power, and scarcity come into play. Where a fixed market operates in the light of day, you can be sure a black market slithers under the cover of darkness. As the 2011 season came to a close, such was the surplus of maple syrup that year that a third warehouse had to be rented in order to house the fleet of excess barrels that had been produced. As we mentioned earlier, each producer can send a fixed amount of syrup to the QMSP at the end of each season and cash in. The QMSP tests and tastes the syrup. I imagine just one guy doing that. <laughs> 
just a spoonful. They are also in charge of grading the syrup. It is worth mentioning that the quota at the time had been set in 2004, so seven years prior. Since then, production had ballooned up significantly in the states to a tune of 27% to be exact. This is probably a good time to mention that the Federation also keeps a cut of each barrel sale for itself. Obviously, you wouldn't call yourself a Federation unless you did something like that. These funds are redistributed for marketing, paying salaries, doing maintenance, paying that one guy that just eats the maple syrup all day. You know, things like that. The reserve, per se, is located in Laurierville, a Quebec town characterized by steeples and snowy hills, and Quebec culture is rooted in Catholicism, with churches and pubs competing for spots in the landscape. The reserve and its outliers, the warehouses rented out during time of excess, houses around 7.5 million gallons of maple syrup, which is almost as much as I use on a stack of pancakes. <laughs> White barrels stacked 20 feet high are placed in endless rows like imagine if you will indiana jones <laughs> the warehouse right the endless warehouse that's what we got going on here but it's all maple syrup they're immovable and under light surveillance in addition to this the barrels are inspected on their way in as well as once a year let's not forget that sometimes during prolonged periods of excess they can stay untouched for years in his reporting for vanity fair journalist rich cohen interviewed the spokesperson at the time for qmsp carolyn sear when asked if there had ever been a spill in one of the warehouses she quietly said no which is <laughs> which is a really weird way to answer that question at any given time the inventory in the reserve totals around 185 million dollars <laughs> that's so much money in just maple syrup it boggles my mind how intense this is like i don't like i understand that there's certain things that cost a lot to produce and then like that drives up the prices like milk for instance you got to do a lot of things to get milk you gotta basically abuse cows and you gotta do whatever the heck they're doing i don't know but maple syrup they're really just you and now where there's so many like quick tools that they are using, it seems like it's like a almost 90% profit margin on, on maple syrup. And it's crazy, man. Anyway, the Federation had everything controlled down to a science. This was the nature of the maple syrup production in Quebec. Chaos was traded in for a sense of safety. In the summer of 2012, it was time for one of those, quote, yearly inspections. As such, Michael Gavreau, tasked by the QMSP with taking the inventory of barrels began ascending one of the towering masses of white barrels located in the warehouse in St. Louis de Belford. As he reached the top of the tower, he clung to, a, to the topmost barrel for balance and it teetered effortlessly. Now, you'll recall that we mentioned earlier how typically those barrels weigh up to 600 pounds. So, our boy Michael grabbed onto that barrel thinking that it would, of course, support his weight as he climbed up because he's not, you know... <laughs> He's not one of the thousand pound sisters. This was not the case. Michael almost lost balance. After regaining his composure and balance, Michael was overcome with curiosity. He tapped on the barrel, which echoed. Empty. He pried it open and peered inside. That's right. It was indeed empty. Thinking it was a fluke, Michael progressively progressed swiftly to some adjacent barrels to confirm his suspicion. Fortunately, it quickly became evident that this was, in fact, not a fluke. Many, many, many barrels were empty. A small sliver of hope lied in the fact that perhaps this was simply a loading mistake, perhaps a pallet of empty barrels had mistakenly been labeled as full and loaded up, but soon, a worse prognosis, metamorphosed, some barrels were full of liquid, but it was not the sweet elixir that Michael Gavreau knew as maple syrup. No, it was just, just, just water, just regular water, not, not syrup water, not maple water, oh man, this could only 
<laughs> mean one thing, he reasoned, that someone had deliberately replaced the pricey gold nectar with plain old water in an effort to cover their tracks. It's like when you <laughs> sneak in to your parents' liquor cabinet and you take the vodka, right? And you drink it and then you put water in. Like, they're not going to know because they don't drink the vodka. Like, your parents definitely don't drink that. But even weirder, it's like if you... <laughs> It's like if you broke into your parents' pantry and took the maple syrup off of the counter or whatever shelf and drank it and then filled that with water. Because I know you probably have seen it, but maple syrup looks nothing like water. And if these if these tanks are the ones that I'm thinking of, like chemical storage tote tanks, like you can tell what color the liquid is inside them sometimes. So I feel like I feel like Michael's not very good at his job is basically what I'm violating boiling down to they had effectively been robbed okay <laughs> this this is we got a big dime maple syrup heist going on right now when michael just fell into the middle of it after the initial shock the full scope of the theft had been cataloged all in all came to pass that the thieves targeted the maple syrups reserves rented warehouse in st louis de belford and made out with 540,000 gallons of maple syrup which amounted to 12.5 percent of the entire maple syrup reserve which had the street value of wait for it 13.4 million dollars <laughs> and also this like like, thinking of them, like, selling it on the street, like, a guy in a trench coat opens it up, and it's just, like, a bunch of bottles of syrup, but the labels are all scratched off. You wanna buy some syrup? What's up? Try to drizzle on some pancakes? Yeah, I got what you need, man. Anyway, cops swarmed the warehouse and interviewed workers and representatives of the QMSP. All in all, over 300 people were interviewed as part of the police investigation, but it was gumshoe policing. Painstakingly followed by a black market trail through Quebec, back roads that extended like a network of veins through the countryside, all culminating in various open markets that ultimately led police to their perp. See, once the syrup exited the Federation barrels, it was just syrup, but it was hot syrup. Contraband, unidentifiable save for its origins, so identifying a chain of custody with no missing links became the order of business. Instinctively, it was surmised that the only way thieves could have siphoned off such huge quantities of maple syrup was estimated that around 9,571 barrels were siphoned off, as if they had recurring access to the facility. This was, in short, most likely an inside job. That's right, Denzel Washington. No. <laughs> As is required of all gumshoe police work, investigators began asking questions, lots of questions. The police task force behind this was no joke. Obviously, Big Maple, they're not gonna let just some people off the wagon. I'm imagining Columbo, like a dream team. All right, we got Columbo, probably. He solves everything. And then Batman, world's greatest detective. And just to, you know, keep things interesting, probably. <laughs> and also in theme with the French Canadian vibes, uh, Jacques Clouseau of Pink Flame, <laughs> the Pink Panther. I'm sorry, that was dumb. That was a really dumb joke, but it made me happy. So anyway, three organizations, the Sorette de Quebec, which is the Quebec police was quickly joined by the Royal Canadian Mount Canadian Mounted Police the Mounties are in on it and US Customs in order to swiftly capture the bandits that undermined the Federation and walked away with millions of dollars worth of product. Operating on a tip, it came to be known that Avic Perrin, whose spouse co-owned the warehouse, could possibly be involved. The thought was that suppliers who were at odds with the Federation's stronghold on the product and pricing could benefit from selling overflow to open markets for extra cash. It's with this line of thought that police 
ultimately arrested 17 people in connection with the theft. The ringleader was a man named Richard Vallier, a self-confessed barrel roller. <laughs> Richard Vallier was the kind of man who was known in syrup circles as being uh, keen on circumventing fed federation regulations in order to make a quick buck on the side. He's that guy that like you work at with certain at certain places and he's like <laughs> actually you know what they if they wanted to make money, this is what they do. And then he starts doing that and then he gets fired. That's him. That's this guy for sure. He's been undercutting the Federation for at least a decade and I was already a thorn in their side by the time he concocted the warehouse heist. Richard was introduced to Avic Karen shortly after the warehouse co-owned by Avic's spouse began housing the syrup, uh, soup. <laughs> the surplus syrup. This alliteration is killing me. In an Ocean's Eleven style monologue, I can just picture the two plotting to bleed out the Federation one barrel at a time. Added to their now crew of two was Raymond Valliere, Richard's very own brother. I told you, it's a family run type of business. This <laughs> industry's great. Ultimately, the three men were convicted, with Richard receiving the harshest sentence as the ringleader. He was sentenced in April of 2017 to eight years in prison and ordered to pay back $9.4 million. Richard's father, Raymond, received a lesser sentence of two. Oh, I might have said. <laughs> I might have said brother earlier. Richard's father, Raymond, received a lesser sentence of two years. As for Avic, he received a five-year prison sentence and was ordered to pay up to $1.2 million in fine. You see, the thieves had managed to move the stolen product to open markets in New Brunswick, which is apparently a lotless province when it comes to selling sweeteners. There, they sold a hefty portion of uh, the syrup to Etienne St. Pierre, a syrup reseller, <laughs> what a wild job to have, who was ultimately com uh, convicted of brokering deals with buyers with stolen goods. He received a two-year sentence and was ordered to pay $850,000 in fines. A fourth man that was part of the core crew, Sebastian Jutras, was a getaway driver who also hauled the stol stolen product in various locations with his truck. He got eight months in jail. All conspirators claimed that they did not view their actions as theft. They operated under the banner of virtue, claiming that it was the Federation who had stole from the farmers by holding their product hostage and not paying them out for years based on pricing that ultimately they decided, which I think is pretty fair. So how did they do it? Well, it's pretty simple actually. The thieves rented a unit next to the minimal security warehouse for unrelated purpose. This gave them an excuse to have truck coming and going from their space at any given time. Between 2011 and 2012, the group would take barrels under the cover of night and haul them to a sugar shack nearby where they would siphon out the crude into their own vessels and refill the Federation marked barrels with water. Then they would bring the barrels back to the warehouse. Towards the end, it has been reported that they were getting bold siphoning directly in the warehouse. What's more, it looks like the operation gained confidence and gusto. They folded in new conspirators into the mix, which is never a good thing. As more people means more liability, you gotta keep your crew small, all right? If you don't take anything away from this, it's when you're, when you're engaging in multi-million dollar syrup theft, gotta have a small crew. Needless to say, because of the sheer quantity of product that was stolen, the number of people facilitating it, boldness was definitely a contributing factor in this whole operation. In its initial success, as, a, as much as its eventual downfall, I might add. It was so outlandish that it went undetected for a year. What's more, because of the Federation's own structure, the barrels didn't see any movement through the market during that whole time. If it wasn't for the yearly inspection, the con may have lasted until a paltry spring harvest. Either way, the thieves operated for a long time undetected. So, besides New Brunswick, what other kind of kind of lawless place did this hot syrup end and hot syrup end up well it looks like it 
also made its way past the border into Vermont. Dude, I knew it, dude. People in Vermont, listen, I've always said it. People in Vermont will buy stolen syrup and I'm, I think it's time we all admit it, right? <laughs> anyway, it made its way into, into Vermont where an innocent enough candy maker claimed innocence at the whole fiasco when the police descended on his factory and found stolen bounties stored there. The thieves were said to have sold the syrup for around $10 million, having pocketed around $1 million each. They were, of course, made an example of having been ordered to pay everything back and then some, you know, because Federation doesn't mess up, mess around, dude. It's Federation, all right? You've seen Star Wars, you get it. Maple syrup is serious business in Quebec. Unlike oil, it can't be tapped anywhere in the world. The maple belt and sugar bushes in Quebec, as well as cultural veil that is now intertwined between Quebec culture and the production of maple syrup, make this trade industry a multifaceted communion with the land. There's a passing of knowledge and the idea that what we do with this knowledge characterizes the sign of the times or value systems associated with our current society. The knowledge about how to make maple syrup could be made. The knowledge about how maple syrup could be made came from an otherworldly realm and was imparted upon the local indigenous people who lived on these lands before anyone else. They in turn shared this knowledge with the white man. The white man brought new tools that facilitated different type of production. For a time there existed sugar shacks straddling the line between survival, substance, and celebration. This was ephemeral as, as soon the leviathan of capitalism engulfed the trade and money became the ultimate motivator. So how's the federation dealing with the chinks in the armor that were exposed to the world well for starters the new building for the global strategic reserve facility in laurierville is now the fort knox of syrup obviously armed with cameras on every corner the facility is now surrounded by an eight foot tall fence and access and access is controlled via a keypad and code system it seems like the federation was left greatly embarrassed by the heist the new warehouse which looks more like a bank costs four million dollars to build doesn't seem like it should be enough that should be four million dollars they stole 10 well like 13 million dollars worth of thing i don't know man this was paid no doubt by the tax money collected from the maple syrup producers who are bound to the federation so that's kind of embarrassing some people probably the same members of the faction that don't align with, align with the Federation think that this is ridiculous and laughable. In 2018, small-time maple syrup producers Nathalie Bombardier and Daniel Gaudreau, Goudreau, Gaudreau? Gaudreau. and Daniel Gaudreau had their surplus seized by the SQ. They had previously resisted selling their surplus to the Federation, preferring to sell an open market to make money. Other farmers buy into the safety. Part of the rationale is that there are part of my pun untapped markets out there namely in china and india if these areas were to be breached a year-long supply of maple syrup would be a must and so the tension in the maple syrup landscape of quebec persists as for you know as for the highest it seemed it is estimated that around 70 percent of the stolen syrup was recovered the rest was drizzled away somewhere in the united states probably all in vermont with those greedy Vermont people. <laughs> Unreal. In 2021, the QMSP released 50 million pounds of maple syrup from the reserve to meet global uh, the global economy. It is believed by experts that this was in part due to the rise in home cooking due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which makes sense. Around the town in Laurierville, the reserve building is known as La Fortress du Cereal de Terrible. The Maple Syrup Fortress. That seems, I feel like Fortress for Terres du Cereal is probably enough, but you know. <laughs> like I said, the Federation doesn't mess around, dude. They, they, they're intense and they care about their syrup, alright? <sighs> anyway, that is the tale of the Syrup Kings and Queens. 
of Quebec and Greater Canada area. Not so dissimilar from the diamond cartels and things. There, there's just a lot of weird parallels to some of the shadier businesses. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not that weird in the grand scheme of things, but you gotta think that the farmers that are producing this, like they're, if they make more than what they, like they don't see that movie or that money. <laughs> they don't see that movie, dude. They don't see that money until way later down the road until that reserve gets tapped. And like the whole idea of like the Federation's like, what if China and India start liking syrup? <laughs> like, bro, I kind of feel like they probably, like if they wanted it, they probably would have started buying it a while ago. Like it's not a hidden secret. People are like, dude, did you know China doesn't know what maple syrup is? Like it's, it's such a weird, I feel like that's a weird spot to get hung up on, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, anyway, who would have thought that, you know, something so sweet as syrup that things would be so crazy. You got heists left and right. Anyway, uh, thank you for those of you who have listened. Uh, also, thank you for those of you who have given us reviews, ratings, wherever possible. If you enjoyed this episode, if you learned something about maple syrup, how crazy it is, please leave a comment, leave a review. You can leave comments on YouTube. You can leave comments in the Facebook group and Facebook page. Both of those you can find through the link tree. So please do yourself a favor. Join there. You can talk to other people who enjoy the show. Uh, thank you once again to Chloe for doing the work on this uh, topic. I'm glad that I'm glad that this is something that she um, wanted to do because, you know, this is from her region. So I was like, this is perfect. You know, some of the some of the interesting aspects of this that I was kind of taken surprised by, I think, are primarily just the <laughs> sheer quantities and prices of maple syrup like obviously i know it's expensive i buy a bottle i don't buy a lot but you know you buy a bottle every now and then and you're like okay well if that's three or four bucks or whatever it is just imagine a whole 600 gallon like tub of it <laughs> and then imagine a bunch like a bunch of dudes just siphon and i know that they probably use like technology and like good equipment to siphon it out but <laughs> reading it as they siphoned it out i then just imagined them hanging out like like you know when somebody's siphoning gas for whatever reason there are legal reasons to siphon gas but like <laughs> they have just like a hose that like <laughs> and they <laughs> <laughs> like they have to like suck start the, the siphon <laughs> you know how hard that would be the syrup you'd have to use some sort of uh you'd have to use like a hydraulic system because that's like a thick substance that you're trying to move and just the craftiness like we're gonna rent a place next door we're gonna do all these things we're gonna make it look like we're not doing anything but we might be doing something but they're not gonna know so we got trucks moving around like i want to know how much they spent on that aspect of it like is this money that they already had like could they were they using the warehouse as something that they could still make money on i don't know but it is very impressive <laughs> so i i enjoyed this i really like it i think that um the next one like this i'll probably have to do other markets similar to this like other inflated and controlled markets looking at you to bears diamonds okay like i <laughs> that's definitely going to be the next one that i do of this uh type because we got to figure out what the heck's the deal with diamonds um but anyway maple syrup the fact that it was gifted to the indigenous people whose names i can kind of pronounce by otherworldly little beings of names who I can definitely not pronounce. That was one aspect I did not see coming. Like that was that was pretty wild. Um <laughs> if I'm being honest. So anyway, that is that is it for the show. Go ahead and uh like I said, check out the link in the links in the description. 
find all of the things, our friends, uh, other podcasts, the Real Creature Feature, Macabre Emporium, my other podcasts with Nowhere. If you want to listen to some crazy news stories, if we had the podcast going in 2017, we definitely would have been talking about the <laughs> the maple syrup heist, but it was a little uh, before our time. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, enable, enable notifications, do all the things, um, and that will let you be, uh, keep you updated when I post things. Like, I'm starting to put shorts on there and stuff like that, so uh, just check that out. Share us with your friends. If you liked this episode and you thought uh, it made you laugh or you learned something, share it with your friends. Um, that's uh, the end of the episode. I will see you guys next week. Until next time, uh, don't be stealing any maple syrup and stay curious. Bye!